So I'm hoping that by now you've realized that tomorrow this retreat ends. <laughs> Good. Phew. With your strong mindfulness and clear comprehension. And uh, that's when the real retreat begins tomorrow. The real retreat of your daily life. And how will you navigate that? And this afternoon, I just want to share with you just a couple of reflections that might fit into uh, making that transition and also still some things you might be able to, to notice while on retreat here. And, and to begin with a, a small Zen story, as often with these Zen stories, a monk goes, ask the Zen master, what's the essence of Zen is what the, the monk asked. And the, the Zen master replies, an appropriate response. And in many ways, it's, that's the heart of what we're learning here is an appropriate response to what's arising within our internal experience, but also an appropriate response to also that world out there as well. And it's important to, to, to reflect on that and how do we do that and, and how can we have a sense of maybe something that motivates us in that realm. And in light of this, I w I'd like to begin with um, say another story. This is about uh, James Baldwin, uh, you know, the, the famous African-American writer and novelist, essayist, who in 1957, he was there in Paris reading a newspaper and he'd been in, in France or in about Par uh, Paris for about uh, 10 years. I think mostly as a result of, you know, the taste he had of, of racism growing up in, in the United States. And so there he was uh, with his newspaper in Paris. And in the newspaper, he saw the image of Dorothy Counts, who was a, at that time, a 15-year-old black woman who was um, had just uh, started to enter into uh, an integrated school in Charlotte, North Carolina. And it was the image, it's a famous image actually, of her being taunted and spit upon by white use as she was on her way to her newly integrated school there in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he said when he saw that image of Dorothy Counts and that experience that she was in the midst of, of being taunted and spit upon, he said about it, seeing that it made me ashamed. He said some one of us should have been there with her. And actually it was that point of seeing that image that he had this turning, he said, everybody else was paying their dues. So I knew it was time I went home and paid mine. And at that point, he returned to the United States and actually became 
uh, involved in the civil rights movement. I think it's an, an important question to ask, the question that he poses, really, in what way will you pay your dues? How will you pay your dues on the national level or the state level or in your communities or in your families and relationships or even within? So we can be with those others going through such difficulty, maybe also in order for us to be with ourselves in the midst of trouble and difficulty. And I, I think, just to put it in what I was uh, beginning with, how do you pay your dues skillfully with an appropriate response to this troubled world that you live in? You know, what we're learning here is not only what we're exploring inside, but how does it express itself? Just as Max was talking about, how do you move the fan so the wind begins to blow? in a way that there's an actually an actualization of love, of compassion, of wisdom, the actualization of Buddha nature, the touching, the, the actualization of our understanding of seeing the moon and the dewdrop. And I think that's what's so powerful about this practice is right, it can begin to open up the space just as what you've been doing here this entire week of opening up the space so that there's a space to respond rather than react. And it requires what you're doing to actually sit there in the midst of it, to sit there in the midst of that crazy mind and the crazy reactions so that they in some ways stop here so something else can emerge, something else can blow forth into the world. And uh, this afternoon, I, I just want to explore one facet of this that I find so challenging yet so important. One facet that I need to keep in mind when fanning the winds of wisdom and compassion. To remain inspired by the moonlight in a dr drop of water. And that's this tricky and challenging area of navigating views. Have you noticed how difficult <laughs> it is to navigate the world of views and opinions and perspectives? Now, right now, as I speak to you, there's so much suffering that's arising in this world around some kind of obsessive grasping onto fixed ideologies or fixed views. It's really so much trouble does happen around there. I remember, I, th I think it was last year, I uh, in Flagstaff, I did a uh, a police ride along, see a ride along with a police officer in a police car. 
There's a big story of why I did that and how I would <laughs> ever do such a thing. <laughs> but it was actually important. It was, it was, yeah. And so I asked this uh, young officer, his, his shift was from 2 p.m. till midnight, I think. And the most common call that he'd get when he was on duty. And it was really interesting what it was. Maybe you can guess what it was. Domestic disputes and domestic violence. And he said, these aren't, these, it's not like these, these were calls from repeat offenders. This, these are people from all walks, walks of life. People fighting each other. You know, people fighting with other people. This happens. It happens on our na in our neighborhoods, in our streets. Just happened last week with my neighbor. <laughs> Things like this, I think, happen all the time in my neighborhood. You know, in the in the early discourses, there's an interesting interchange, but from uh, between uh, this Brahmin. Uh, uh, the Brahmin uh, Aramadanda and uh, one of the Buddha's chief disciples, uh, the Venerable Mahakachana. And he basically asks him this question, I'm kind of generalizing it, you know, why do people fight with each other? What's up with all this fighting that goes on? You can say in our communities, in our families, in our, in our cities and towns. And Mahakachana replies, he says, it is Brahman because of attachment to views, adherence to views, fixation on views, addiction to views, obsession with views, holding firmly to views, that people fight with people. And it's not just out there, it's, you know, it's the conflicts in our own lives. It's the conflicts within our own experience. Have you noticed the fighting that goes on in our minds or the fight that we have with our minds? How to navigate this? What can we bring forward? How do we, what to remember to keep that fan going? And I'd like to use actually a, a passage from the Genjo Koan. Um, just a few pages in. And Dogen he gives really clear instructions about this, interesting instructions. He begins, let's see. Yeah, it's on the second page, so the, the back side of the first page, the second page here. He begins, he says, when Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. But when Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. So I want to stop here just to clarify this because we usually think this is differently. When, I, when I'm filled with the truth, when I'm filled with understanding, when I'm filled with the Dharma, I would think that that's when things would feel that, like they're already sufficient. But he's saying the opposite. He's saying, you know, when you're not filled with the way things are, when you don't understand the Dharma, when you don't have wisdom, so when Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, that's when you think it's already su sufficient. That's when you go around and you think, oh, this is already sufficient. <coughs> oh, this is all of it that I have right now. He said, so he's equating that with a deluded mind. 
And he's saying basically a mind that's filled with wisdom. So when your body is filled completely and mind are filled with the Dharma, that's when you understand, you always understand that something is missing. So to understand that something is missing is connected with this quality of wisdom. And then he explains this, right? He gives a really uh, wonderful example of this. He says, for example, when you sail out in a boat to the middle of an ocean where no land is in sight and you view the four directions, the ocean looks circular and does not look any other way. Have you ever been out in the ocean and it kind of has that sense, right? It looks circular like that. That's the way it looks when you're out in the middle of the ocean. But essentially, then he goes on, but essentially the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. And here he's actually, I think, referring to some Chinese literature of, of different uh, creatures seeing the, the ocean differently. He says, sometimes it is, like a it is like a palace or it is like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as you can see at that time. All things are like this. And then he goes on, though there are many features in the dusty world and the world beyond conditions, you see and understand only what your eye of practice can reach. In order to learn the nature of the myriad things, you must know that although they may look round or square, the other features of oceans and mountains are infinite in variety. Whole worlds are there. It is so not only around you, but also directly beneath your feet or in a drop of water. Don't you find this striking? That what realization is about, what it is to be filled with the Dharma is to know that you can never have a complete perspective. Because sometimes we engage in a spiritual practice to think, oh, if I practice enough, if I become wise enough, then I'll have the view or the explanation or the perspective that's the correct one, that's the real deal. And he's saying, that doesn't exist. Your, your perspective is always limited. Always limited. There is no complete perspective out there. So gaining a complete perspective is not the point of this practice. The point of the practice is, is to uh, realize what he began with, that always, whatever I see, there's always something missing from my view and my perspective. Have you noticed you have, you have a mind that's not like that? We, we really think we know what the ocean really looks like. We really think what this person is like. It's like we know that person. We know what they're all about. Or we can think that about ourselves. I really know myself in some kind of way. I know what I'm, I'm all about in some kind of manner. Or what this problem is like. We know the right view to have and the wrong view to have. What is it like to realize that always something is missing? So what allows the Dharma to truly fill the mind and the body? What allows us to remember always something's missing from my perspective?
And I, I, I want to um, point out how subtle this can happen and how quickly it can happen around our views. I remember I was, again, walking down the street in Flagstaff, where I live, and I was walking, I passed a home that had a political sign in it. It was, um, it was election season. And it was a political sign of the person that I was not going to be voting for. <laughs> <laughs> and when I saw the sign, it was amazing what my mind did. Immediately, I, I felt like I had a feeling for the people in that house, and I knew that they were not good people. <laughs> So this is before even seeing the people that lived in the house. I didn't even know if people lived in that house, right? Somebody could just put up a sign in front of an empty house and not even known it. But it's like, I felt like I knew that. I knew, and the thing that I was most clear about them is that they were wrong. <laughs> that that's, was the feeling, that, that somehow they were wrong. And that emerged, that experience emerged really in a matter of seconds by seeing a sign and then the mind had made an assumption. Have you noticed your mind do this? It's amazing. I mean, I always see it around bumper stickers, right? You see bumper stickers, sometimes it's like you feel this connection with one car, you feel an aversion to another car, as if you know, like the people in that car. We have no idea. This is such an aside. This is just a random thought that came up, but it just reminds me. So when I was um, in high school, I had um, not a such great, not such a great run-in with drugs. I loved using it at that time, and I remember <laughs> one of my friends loved to have all these bumper stickers, like just say no to drugs and things like that, on his bumper sticker, and the hopes that he wouldn't get pulled over, like to give the different <laughs> impression. <laughs> it was really great, you know. <laughs> that was kind of smart, you know, really try to, because <laughs> he knew, he knew how bumper stickers works. <laughs> I don't know how well it works, like, kind of like as the time went on, that's for sure. And I'm sure you've seen it on retreat. It's amazing when we just see people in the silence, like all of a sudden, you know, we find ourselves um, like we really know another person on, on the retreat, the kind of the judgments, the biases, either a positive judgment or a negative judgment. And it's just like, we've just seen people like walking around and like sitting still. And then all of a sudden, like we know, like I have a real sense what that person's going through. Like they've been acting like this and I think that this is going on. And <laughs> it's amazing views, right? It's like, I forget, I forget that something's missing. And you'd think here, you know, that we'd realize something's missing, like speaking to the person. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to point out how deep this is, that this is a real practice that, that Dogen's encouraging us to engage in, to allow yourself to be filled with a Dharma, to see that something's always missing. And again, how? How to get more of a sense of this? How to see this more deeply? And again, I think we can hearken back to uh, 
the Pali discourse is kind of early Buddhism, and again, another story in that that I think is striking around views. And this happened with uh, Ananda. Ananda was uh, the Buddha's cousin, and he was uh, really the Buddha's main attendant uh, for most of his life. And he, it was early in the morning before the sun had risen in uh, this town, Rajagaha, there was some uh, hot springs, Tabota hot springs. And so he was down there um, bathing in the hot springs, something during at that time that ascetics loved to do. And there was another wandering ascetic there that was hanging out in the hot springs and and uh, asked Ananda, are, are you a monk? You know, because, you know, Ananda didn't have his, his robes on. They were out in the hot springs. And Ananda said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a monastic. And he asked Ananda, so what kind of views do you hold as a monastic? And he kind of went through this kind of classic litany of questions that really signify, yeah, what are your views on the spiritual path and uh, about the world? Kind of these questions that you find uh, kind of come up kind of in a, a regular way in the, in the Pali discourses. Like, do you believe that the, is the cosmos eternal? Is it not eternal? What other kind of views do you have about the spiritual path? And uh, with each question that the aesthetic asked Ananda, Ananda said, no, I actually don't have that view. I don't have the view that the cosmos is eternal, and I don't have the view that it's not eternal. And the aesthetic was, was confused by this, and he said to Ananda, well, you know, I just want to say, it sounds like you do not know and see know and seeing being, it sounds like you're somebody with no wisdom from the spiritual path. I mean, here you can't tell me what views you hold on to. And then Ananda said, oh, no, that's incorrect. I actually, I do know and I do see. And then he was further confused, the ascetic, about what Ananda's saying. And he, he basically said, you know, well, I asked you all of these questions and you couldn't tell me what view you hold on to. And yet you say, I do know and I see. So what do you know and what do you see? And Ananda said, quote, this is his, what he knows and sees. Only this is true. Anything otherwise is worthless. He said, basically, I know that that phrase is a viewpoint. And to the extent to which there are viewpoints, view stances, the taking up of views, the obsession of views, the cause of views, and the uprooting of views, that's what I know. That's what I see. Knowing that, I say, I know. Seeing that, I say, I see. Why should I say I don't know, I don't see? I do know, and I do see. It was that at this moment, the the aesthetic looked a little closer and said, "Ah, oh, oh, you're Ananda, the great teacher." And with that, he actually began to see the person in front of him, the person he was so blind to, the venerable Ananda. That's so much of the practice we're trying to do of what Ananda was doing is seeing that. Oh, that's just a view that's arising. That's a limited view that's arising in the mind right now. 
and being able to see that this is so much of what we're we've been uh, trying to to engage in this is what i spoke about in the afternoon uh yesterday evening around the thinking process oh thinking remembering oh there's a viewpoint oh interesting there's an opinion isn't that interesting and sometimes we can get also the further depth of ananda's knowing and seeing the cause of views oh interesting there's a wanting to be right oh interesting oh there's anger here oh interesting this is the cause of this particular view. Oh, there's fear here. Oh, and there's a knowing and seeing and the uprooting of views, the relinquishment of views. Oh, oh, that's just attachment. Oh, interesting. That's just a wanting or a not wanting that's arising in the mind. And then there's this attachment to this view. That's the knowing and seeing that Ananda is encouraging us to engage in. And the tricky thing is I want to point out there's nothing wrong with having a view. It's part of the spiritual path. And it's important, for example, to have values, to have ethical values, and to stand by those values and to voice those values. It has to do with how you hold them, how you navigate them. There's an analogy that, that's found in the Dhammapada around this, and it's the analogy around kusa grass. So kusa grass was a kind of grass that was used in Vedic rituals and ceremonies, so it has a kind of sacred connotation to it. But it's a, a sharp grass. And it's really clear, like if you hold grass, grass um, tightly and then it, comes through the hand, right, it, you immediately get cut. But if the, the hand is open, it can be there without being harmed whatsoever. How do you hold your views so that you don't get cut and so that you don't cut others? How do you hold views in an effective way and still stand by values that are important to stand by. One example of this that uh, there's a great article written about this in the Atlantic monthly a few years ago and it was uh, it was about this musician Daryl Davis who uh, Shingai, so he played in a, he was a, um, uh, played in a, a, a country band and it was a, an all white band other than him. He was, he was, uh, the black guy in the, in the band and his country band was playing at an all white, um, venue in, uh, in Maryland, in Frederick, Maryland. And, um, uh, this fellow, Roger Kelly, came up to him and they started a conversation. And Roger Kelly, possibly at that time, but he might have um, gone on, he was the, um, what they call the, uh, the uh, Grand uh, Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. And 
Daryl Davis became really curious and um, decided to kind of pursue this. You know, here he is, this African-American man, really curious about the views of this KKK member. And so he gets his number from someone um, and uh, somebody says to him, Daryl, don't go over to Roger Kelly's house. You know, I mean, this guy could kill you. I mean, his, his viewpoint is really extreme. We're not just talking about subtle racism. This is a whole different um, realm of white supremacy. And uh, he did not heed that call and um, called him up and uh, started to make a connection with him which was really uh, quite interesting of actually beginning to uh, talk with them and, and connect. Let me just... And he kind of explained his logic about uh, connecting with Roger Kelly. He said, the most important thing I learned is that when you are actively learning about someone else, you are passively teaching them about yourself. So if you have an adversary with an opposing point of view, give that person a platform and allow them to air that point of view, regardless of how extreme it may be. And believe me, I've heard things so extreme at these rallies. So he's going to KKK rallies, actually, as an African-American man. They'll cut you to the bone. And then he says, and then after you make that connection, after you have such a, a friendship or a connection with them and your willingness to listen to them, you challenge them. But you don't challenge them rudely or viol violently. You do it politely and intelligently. And when you do things that way, chances are they will reciprocate, reciprocate and give you a platform. So he when, and I, he's talking about Roger Kelly, uh, would sit down and listen to one another over a period of time. And the cement that held his ideas together began to get cracks in it. And then it began to crumble. And then it fell apart. And soon thereafter, actually, the uh, Roger Kelly quit, quit the KKK. And as uh, Daryl Davis explains, he said, he, he no longer believes today what he said. And this is a striking thing. He said, and when he quit the Klan, he gave me his robe and hood, which is the robe and hood of the Imperial Wizard. And this actually, he had these kinds of conversations with two other clan leaders in Maryland of really taking the time to listen. And this is quite striking and powerful. And, you know, Daryl Davis had, had mentioned, you know, people who really didn't understand what he's doing um, really heavily cri criticized him in the sense of, what are you doing sitting down with, with people that are so irrational and evil and destructive? You know, that's not the way to go about this. And I want to point out, this is, this is a, um, 
an argument that is even used in the social activist Buddhist world of like, there are people that we do not tolerate and we do not listen to. And the best thing to do is to fight back as much as we can. And so I, I do want to point out, he, he takes a radical view to this, which I think is so in line with this practice. And his, um, and his comeback is always asking them, how many robes and hoods do you have in your closet that you've collected from people <laughs> who have left the KKK? <laughs> and he says, not many people can argue with them with his results. So not only is it wise, it's effective. That's how transformation works. It's actually the willingness to listen. And yeah, it's difficult to give someone a platform. And of course, not to agree with them. He did anything but agree with them. But he knew the road to transformation. The Russian novelist uh, Dostoevsky puts it well. He says, while there is nothing easier than to denounce the wrongdoer, there is nothing more difficult than to understand them. Can we deeply understand and be clear about our values and to be clear about clarifying situations and educating, but in a way that is effective, that's skillful. And it, what it requires of me is not to t hold on too tightly to my views. It, it requires me to listen in some manner. It's not so simple as simple denouncing. And again, a quote from, um, Alexander uh, uh, Solzhenitsyn he says, if, if only it were that simple, also simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart. And we get to see that, don't you? Don't you get to see that, 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 that somehow this is, exists within our own heart? And does it work? Does it work to fight with your own heart to kill that part of your heart that you think is so evil? Or is there another way around it of doing what we've been trying to do here to actually deeply listen, to be aware? to allow a transformation on a different level. And it's true, I think we have minds that want it to be so simple around people. That's how we categorize others. That's how we categorize ourselves. I remember working with someone who's actually doing some trauma work and It was uh, this individual and she was struggling with having one at the same time as she reflected on her life, both, she said, the most 
wonderful mother and the most horrible mother. Really, really had done so many wonderful things for her, but also some really, uh, you could say, unimaginable things uh, to her at the same time. And we were there together, and she was feeling the depth of this struggle, and, and she, in the midst of that, she it really expressed that struggle so well. She said, what makes it so difficult is I don't know how to hold her in one way with such of this, such complexity. And it was with that phrase that there the insight came. Oh, the attempt to hold somebody in some kind of simplistic one way. Because I write, I want the one view that captures it all. I want the one perspective that sees it all, that where something's not missing. But you can't do that with another human being, can you? You can't do it with yourself. We're so complex. How do we have a broader way of holding? And I mean, how do you hold others in your life? I'm not talking about condoning certain behavior or feeling like we need to hang out with everybody or be friends with everybody. There's places for boundary. There's places to take care of ourselves and those around us. It's not about that. It's about navigating a complex, troubled world. And often what I need to remember comes from this other Zen story. Quite similar to other Zen stories. Once upon a time. <laughs> Fayan. Fayan is the monk here, right? We got the monk in the story. Actually, he turned into a great Zen master. But in this, this uh, story, he's just a, a monastic. And he's traveling from <coughs> temple to temple with a few other um, people on the path. Also monastics, probably. And they came upon um, a hermitage. And it was uh, the hermitage of uh, the Zen master, Dizong. <laughs> And the hermit came out and said to Fayan, this monk, he said, where are you going? So there's many different levels to this. Here's the Zen master. Whenever a Zen master asks you a question, <laughs> you know that something's up. And he's prodding, he's wondering, you know, what's up with Fayan? What kind of, what kind of practitioner is Fayan? What kind of practitioner is this monastic that's traveling by my hermit? I want to know. I want to poke into his practice and really see what kind of practitioner is in front of me. So Fion replied and he said, oh, I'm, I'm on pilgrimage wherever my feet take me. So Dizong digs deeper and he says, well, what do you expect, expect from pilgrimage? And Fion says, I don't know. And the Zen master replies, Ah, uh, not knowing is most intimate. That's where the most int intimacy arises. Oh, not knowing is most intimate. Remember, we've been talking about this quality of intimacy when the myriad things come forth to experience themselves, that sense of intimacy. It's from not knowing to remember we don't know. And, and I, 
I think what's important about this story, when I reflect on it, is that I think, I don't think Fayan's trying to be all profound and Zen-like <laughs> in giving some kind of cool Zen answer. I feel like he's just being honest. He's just, he's just a simple practitioner and being honest about where he stands, that here he is, he's just on a pilgrimage, wherever his feet take him, and he has no idea what's gonna come from pilgrimage. Just being open and honest in that way. And it's this kind of not knowing, not the not knowing of ignorance, the not knowing of openness. Can you continue to cultivate this quality of not knowing, the not knowing of op openness with the situations that are, I'm sure, are awaiting you out there in all kinds of ways. Yeah. And this is not the not knowing of not having values or ethical integrity or standing up against harm and violence and systems of oppression that are out there. It's not about that at all. As James Baldwin realized, it's important to pay your dues it's important for you to be there for those others, like Dorothy Counts when she was 15 years old. So again, An invitation to ask yourself, how will you pay your dues? How will you have an appropriate response? How will you remember that something is always missing? So again, Dogen, when Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. Yet when Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. For example, when you sail out in a boat to the middle of an ocean where no land is in sight and view the four directions, the ocean looks circular and does not look any other way. But the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace, it is like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as you can see at that time. All things are like this. Though there are many features in the dusty world and the world beyond conditions, you see and understand only what your eye of practice can reach. In order to learn the nature of the myriad things, you must know that although they may look around or square, the other features of oceans and mountains are infinite in variety. Whole worlds are there. It is so not only around you, but also directly beneath your feet or in a drop of water. So let's sit just for a minute here. 